Y'all turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. H.G. Wells, science fiction writer of another generation, wrote a short story once called The Country of the Blind. And it's about this village high up in the Andes Mountains in, in a valley surrounded on all four sides by, by mountain peaks. And so it was almost inaccessible. Um, and, and at some point years and years and years ago, there was this horrible disease that befell the people of that village in that valley, and all of them were blinded. And in fact, it was something that became genetic. It would be passed down from generation to generation. Their kids and their kids' kids would be blind as well. It's not a true story, but makes for a good beginning to a work of fiction. Um, in fact, the, the village was so inaccessible because of the mountains around it, and, and so much time passed, generation after generation, that eventually the people of that village not only couldn't see, they didn't even know there was such a thing as sight. They just thought there were only four senses and not five. And then one day, a man named Nunez is climbing one of those mountains, a man from the outside, and he happens to fall, and he falls down into that valley and somehow survives. And so he he meets these people, these villagers, all of whom, of course, are blind. And at first, he thinks to himself, you know, the old saying is, in the the country of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Have you ever heard that? And and he thinks, well, I've got two good eyes. I can can help these people. If they'll listen to me, I I can lead them to a better life. But they won't listen to him. In fact, they think that Nunez is crazy because he keeps talking about being able to see and using these eyes to see things, and he just tries to describe the things he's seen. Well, they've never seen. They've never known anybody who can see. They don't have any frame of reference. They think he's crazy. Well, Nunez falls in love with one of the young women of the village, and he desperately wants to marry her. And he goes to the father and asks the father's permission for her hand in marriage. And the father goes to the local doctor. And he says, I don't know what to do. This man Nunez has proposed to my daughter, but he's crazy. What what, what should I do about this? And the doctor says, well, all he has to do is have his eyes removed and then his delusions will be gone and he'll be normal like us. So the father goes to Nunez and and gives him the condition. He says, if you have the surgery, if you have your eyes removed, then you can marry my daughter. And at first he says, absolutely, I will do that. This is how much I love your daughter. But on the morning of the surgery, uh, he gets up and decides to wake up before dawn and go out and watch the sunrise, to use his eyes to see something beautiful one last time. And as he sees the sun rising up over those majestic peaks and and all the nature and and, and beauty around him, he just thinks to himself, I can't do this. I mean, I love her, but not this much. this, This is too much ignorance and backwardness to submit to. I have to leave. And so without telling anyone, he climbs up that mountain and leaves forever. Now, the point of me telling you that story is that we live in the country of the blind, spiritually speaking, that all around us, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, in the businesses we go to, the restaurants where we eat, even in our own families, there are people who are spiritually blind. They cannot see the God who loves them. They cannot see the world that we understand through the grace of God exists. The love of a God who created us in His image and has this incredible plan for our lives and loves us so much, He became a man just to die in our place so we could have a relationship with Him and experience eternal and abundant life. We see all that. We know that. They can't see it. To them, it's foolishness. To them, it's a fairy tale. And Jesus told us it's our job to share with them what we have. It's our job. In fact, he said in Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world. Talking about us. 
You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Anybody know that song, This Little Light of Mine? Anybody? Anybody? Come on. All right. Okay, you have to sing it with me. You ready? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Very good. Y'all did good. Okay, I'm not going to do the hide me under the bushel thing. So, um, so Jesus gave us this job that we need to bring light to those who are in darkness. Jesus was the original Nunez. He didn't fall into a land of blindness. He willingly came into a world where no one could see God. No one knew what God was like. Even the holiest of holy men, they just had an approximation of what God was like. Jesus was God, and He brought light into the world. And when they they thought He was crazy, just like Nunez, and they didn't want to take His sight, they wanted to kill Him, He didn't flee. He said, yes, that's why I came, to give my life in your place and rescue you. And before He left this world, He died, he rose again, he spent some time with his disciples. He gave us what we call today the Great Commission, which is found in Matthew 28, 19. I want to read that to you. Go therefore into all the world, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That was our job description. That is our job description, to reproduce ourselves, to make others like us who are just ordinary people who've come to know an extraordinary God. And you know something I I learned uh, years ago? Not only did Jesus say that in Matthew 28, 19, at the end of the book of Matthew, if you read the other three Gospels, Mark, Luke, and John, at the end of each of those three, there's another similar statement with different wording, but basically saying the same thing. Then in the book of Acts, in chapter 1 of Acts, which is the last moment Jesus is on earth until he comes back again, he says it again a fifth time. "You You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So five different times. So get this, Jesus dies, he rises again, he's got a few days with his disciples in that time, five different times he says the same thing. One of the things I learned in seminary was if you preach or you do any kind of communication, you have to say the same thing at least four or five different times in different ways. You've got to preach it. You've got to put it in a notebook, in a, in a written note. You've got to put it online. People won't get the message until you say it over and over again. That's what Jesus did. He didn't want us to miss that our job is not just to be religious. It's not just to be moral. It's not just to rescue us from the nasty old world out there. Our job is to be His representatives. Think about it for a moment. Jesus said these things five different times, then He ascended into heaven. You know what? He could have... He had, he had a, a few hundred followers, right? He could have just said, hey, why don't y'all come with me? I'll, I'll just zap you all up with me. We'll just go straight to heaven right now. And I'm sure all of them would have said, absolutely, let's do it. But he didn't. He left them here. Why? Well, because he knew there's going to be people like us, millions of us who needed to hear the message. And now that we've heard the message, we're supposed to share it with others too. Now, if you grew up in church, at least a Bible preaching church like I did, You've heard this sermon before. What I've just said, everything that I've just said, maybe not in exactly the same way, you've heard it before. You've heard it so often you could preach it yourself. 
And you've probably been schooled in certain methods of sharing your faith. I know myself, I've, I've, heard, I've learned dozens of different ways of telling the gospel story. When I was a little kid, I learned the Roman road, where you march them through scriptures in the book of Romans. I learned how to share the gospel based on a bracelet you wear with little beads and, and, and different colors and, and sharing the gospel story that way. Um, when I was dating my wife, my father-in-law uh, practiced evangelism on me, wanted to make sure that I was saved since I was dating his daughter, and he asked me two questions questions that come from evangelism explosion. Some of you know that method. Um, there's share Jesus without fear. There's, there's all kinds of methods you could name. And here's the thing. If you've learned one of those, fantastic. But I want to tell you it's not enough. And here's why it's not enough. I mean, we've never had more methods, more resources, more, uh, more uh, technology that enables us to get the word out, and it's still not enough. And here's why. Number one, those methods don't take into account the change in our society. Now, the gospel hasn't changed, but the way people receive it has. Most of those uh, evangelism methods were written, designed back in the 50s, 60s, or 70s. And any evangelist will tell you, anybody who's studied this, any missiologist will tell you that America between the 1940s and the 1970s was especially spiritually ripe, especially receptive to the gospel. I mean, this is the world I grew up in. I was born in 1970. You just grew up knowing that if you said to someone, hey, here's what the Bible said, even if they weren't a churchgoer, they'd say, oh, okay, then it must be true. That's not so much the case anymore. Times have changed. And so we need to recognize that they hear our methods and our message differently than they used to. And here's a story I like to tell to illustrate this. I've told this before in this room, so just roll your eyes if you've heard it before. Get used to it. I like it a lot. I'm going to tell it again. So um, I'm the preacher. You're not. So when years ago, when I was pastoring a church in Pasadena, Texas, I used to go to work every day driving along Beltway 8. And every day on Beltway 8, I'd see this sign, big white sign, black letters. It said the following, and I quote, emu oil for sale. And it listed a phone number. And that's it. That's all the information we had. And I used to think that is the worst marketing I've ever seen in my life because it scares the snot out of me. I mean, I don't know what emu oil is. I know what an emu is. I know what oil is. I don't know what emu oil is. I don't know what it's used for. I particularly don't know how it is extracted from the emu, okay? And I don't want to know. If you know about emu oil, keep it to yourself. This is one of life's mysteries that I'm very comfortable with, okay? I'm happy in my ignorance. But my point is, Every day I'd see that sign and I'd think, wherever that guy's business is, I don't want to go in there. I don't know what else they sell, but I'm afraid I'd walk out glassy-eyed and, and, and brainwashed and carrying a couple of vats of emu oil. And I thought to myself at the time, that's how a lot of unchurched people think about Christianity. They drive past and they say, First Baptist Church, and we see that and we think, hey, that's my home. They see it and they think, I don't want to go in there. I don't know what they do in there. They're probably handling snakes and rolling around on the ground. And I'd walk out of there some kind of weird person, some, some kind of brainwashed freak. I am not going in there. At the very least, I'd go and feel intensely uncomfortable. And I don't need that. We need to understand 99.99% of unbelievers in our country today, even here in the quote-unquote Bible Belt, are not going to come walking into our church doors at random. 
It's just not going to happen. They're not going to pick up a Bible and just start reading. They're not going to turn on an old Billy Graham crusade. They're not going to listen to Christian radio. Or once they find out it's Christian, they're going to turn it off. We live in a different time. Second thing, second reason our methods need to change. Those old methods are great, but they were mostly designed for people with certain personality types, particularly people who are very outgoing, very outspoken, very bold in their personality, people who enjoy confrontation, people enjoy telling the hard truth of life. And most of us are not that way. I'm going to talk more about this in a little bit. But this is why years ago when I read this book, Becoming a Contagious Christian, I thought, this is really good. It really impressed me. It's not the greatest book on evangelism I've ever read, but what it did is it showed that there are many ways to lead someone to salvation, to the bread of life. There are many ways, and it shows it in Scripture. There are times in Scripture where people use a very intellectual approach, where they come with very carefully reasoned arguments and say, here's why I believe, and here's, why, here's where you can meet Christ on, on, in the life of the mind. There are people in Scripture who, who used more of a testimonial approach. They just basically told their story. I don't know much. I just know here's what God did for me. People who used an invitational approach who said, hey, I met this guy Jesus. Come with me. I want you to meet him too. People who used a ministry-based model, who, who just, all they knew to do was love others and, and meet their needs. And as they met those people's needs, it opened a door for them to share Christ. And then people who used their relationships and the change in them, all their friends saw that change and it led them to Christ. And we're going to talk about all those methods in this time over the next few weeks. But also, over the next six weeks, we're going to be talking about it during the life group time. And you're going to get to hear more about this and, and hear more of what it means to have a life that is truly contagious, how you can lead someone to Christ in a way that feels natural to you. Now, that means you need to show up for, for life group time. That means, in fact, I'm, I'm going to challenge you to be here for the next six weeks, starting today, every Sunday, for life group and worship, and see what God can do in and through your life and in and through our church. And if you don't have a life group, you can join one. Or Alan's doing one for people who don't have a place to belong. Um, so see him and, and he'll let you know where that is. But be a part of this. So that brings me to that first method I talked about, the confrontational method. And that's what I want us to talk about today. Uh, we start with Acts chapter 2. And just for some context here, this is the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was a holiday, an annual holiday the Jews celebrated. It was the, it was the celebration of the incoming of the harvest. And, and so they would, there were, this is in the city of Jerusalem, there were people from all over the Middle East who happened to believe in Yahweh who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the holiday. So on this one day, or this one event, there were people speaking all kinds of languages in the city, just jammed in the streets of old Jerusalem. Meanwhile, the 120 core followers of Jesus Christ, his 12 disciples and others, men and women both, gather together in an upper room and they're just praying. Jesus is gone. He's ascended into heaven. They're just waiting. Jesus said, wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. They didn't even know what that meant. But as they prayed, suddenly they hear this sound that sounds like a gale force wind just blasting through their room. And they open their eyes and they look and there's this flame in the air above them. That'll get your attention. Suddenly the flame separates into 12 individual flames that sort of dance atop the heads of the 12 disciples of Jesus. 
And those men begin to speak. And they begin to speak in other languages. Languages they have not known. This is like the world's greatest Rosetta Stone CD, right? I mean, just suddenly they can speak in other languages. And they immediately go outside and begin to share those other languages, share the gospel in those languages they've not been taught. And this draws a crowd. If you've ever gone to another country and you've been in the presence of people who speak another language and you sort of feel out of place, but you hear someone speaking your language, you're drawn to that. And that's what happens here. People come running. Why do I hear my own language being spoken? And when they get there, everyone's confused. What's going on? Who are these men? They're obviously Galilean. We can tell by their accent. And they're like, how can these Galileans speak in these other languages? And which kind of reveals something. Israel, the rest of Israel, looked down on Galilee. Galilee was sort of like the toadsuck Arkansas of Israel. And if you're from toadsuck, my apologies. I'm from Yoakum, Texas, which is only slightly less redneck sounding. So my point is the Galileans were seen as the people who didn't really have it all together. They weren't real bright. And yet here they are speaking these other languages. There were some folks in the crowd, in fact, who said, these guys must be drunk. And Peter realizes someone needs to explain what's going on here. Peter gets up and begins to preach. And he's never preached a message before like this. I want you to, we're not going to read the whole thing, but I want you to begin with verse 22 with me. Verse 22 says, this is Peter speaking, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So this is not exactly God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. This is you crucified the Son of God. He's accusing the people in that crowd. Skip to verse 32 with me. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. So see, he's grounding everything in a personal experience. He's saying, all these men you see in front of you, all these men and women, all of us saw Jesus risen. We know this is true. This is not some fairy tale we've been told. We know it's true. He then says, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So Peter's saying, we're not drunk. We're not especially learned. This is not some freak accident. This is the Holy Spirit of God being poured out on us, just like the prophet Joel said would happen centuries before. And then skip to verse 36. So here's where he draws it all together and brings it home. He says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And Luke, as he's writing Acts, says that after Peter said those words, the people in the crowd were cut to the heart. Imagine a group of people who've gathered just to have fun, just to drink wine and laugh and enjoy themselves, and suddenly they're not thinking about partying at all. All they can think of is, I'm responsible for the death of God's only son. This man I rejected was really from God, our Messiah. What do I do? And Peter says, come and be baptized. And like both Nathan and and, uh, Christian said, baptism doesn't save you, but it's a sign. It's a way of saying, I choose to follow Jesus today. The old me is dead, a new me is here. So get this, church of 120 people, that day baptized 3,000. 3,000. Is that a pretty good Sunday? I'd like to have a Sunday like that one of these days. 
And that wasn't the end of the story. Because those people were just so excited about what God had done for them, the salvation they now had, they went out and told others. And in fact, when a persecution fell upon that church and, and, and the, they were driven out of Jerusalem, the people who persecuted them thought, hey, we're going to stop this in its tracks. We already killed Jesus. Now we're going to get rid of his followers. But instead of stopping it, they just spread the virus, so to speak, as, because everywhere the people fled to, they took the gospel with them. And in fact, the very man who was leading that persecution, Saul of Tarsus, he had a vision and met Jesus personally. And he becomes the man God uses to reach out to everyone who's not Jewish to say, hey, guess what? The Messiah of the Jews is actually the Savior of the world. He's the sign that God loves every single one of you. And if you're not Jewish, you ought to say hallelujah to that. Because every one of us who is a believer in Christ, we can trace the fact that we are a child of God today to the fact that in Acts chapter 2, God sent His Holy Spirit and transformed the world. That was the beginning of the revolution. So three things I want to point out about this story, and then we're done. Number one, I want you to notice how bold Peter was. Again, he didn't get up and tell a few jokes. He didn't try to establish common ground. All he did was say, hey, you're wondering why we're all speaking in these languages? It's the Holy Spirit of God. Remember Jesus? Remember that guy you rejected? Remember the day he was crucified? He rose again three days later. I saw it myself. You're responsible for it. You've got a problem, sir. What are you going to do? Peter was confrontational that day. Because guess what? That's what that moment required. Thousands of people gathered, all asking, what do I do? That was not the time to say, well, let's have coffee in two weeks and we'll talk about it. That was not the time to say, well, here's a book I want you to read and get back to me. That was the time to speak life-saving truth. Now, here's the problem. A lot of people believe that right there is evangelism and nothing else. There's no other way to share your faith than the method we see in Peter right here, and it's not true. Second point, the method Peter used here fit Peter's personality to a T. Because if you read the Gospels, one of the things you love about Peter is he's always putting his foot in his mouth. Peter was the guy who was always the first to speak. I mean, there is no doubt any story in the Scriptures, whenever one of the disciples speaks up, it's always Peter. And once or twice he gets the answer right. The rest of the time, he's just putting his foot in his mouth. you got to love him. He's just bold, good intentions, but no brains, no self-control, no self-impulse control. And some of us are just like Peter. Some of us are just like him. Some of us, we always want to speak. We always want to be the one that shares what we're thinking. If we have an opinion on something, and let's face it, if you're one of those people, you have an opinion on just about everything, you feel like, I need to say this. If I don't say this, I'm depriving these people of, of what I have. And you walk away, you, you're mad at yourself that you didn't speak up. And you can hurt someone's feelings, and it doesn't bother you at all. You can go to bed at night knowing there's people mad at you and want you to die, and you can sleep like a baby. I want to say something. If you're one of those people, and, and by the way, if you're one of those people, you probably know you're one of those people, and if, if you are near one of those people, and you, you think maybe they don't know they're one of those people, right now look at them and just do this, okay? Let them know. You're not going to hurt their feelings. They know. Okay, so if you're one of those people, and you're like Peter, and you just, you just, you're bold, 
That is a gift. I want you to know that. That is a tremendous gift. I pray every day and have prayed for years that God would make me more like you. And that's no lie. That is the absolute truth. But this is also true. Your gift, when it's not under the control of the Holy Spirit, can be one of the most destructive things on earth. You can hurt people. You can wound people. You can say things that drive people away from Christ forever. See, here's Peter. This loud mouth, know-it-all, good intentions, but always saying the wrong thing. But on the day of Pentecost, after he has this experience with the Holy Spirit, he's like magic, man. He's, he, is, he is dropping some wisdom and some truth and some saving knowledge on the people in that crowd. And he didn't have a note to look at. He didn't have any preparation. Folks, this week, I went over this sermon for, for hours. Peter had no preparation. He, had no, he didn't even have a Bible in front of him. All he had was the Holy Spirit of God and his inborn gift of boldness. And God took that gift of boldness and used it. He, he, took, he took a samurai sword that had wounded people and he turned it into a scalpel that saved people's lives. And my question to you, oh bold man or woman, is are you like the old Peter or like the new Peter? That's what you need to answer. Are you the person who's always, always hurting someone's feelings and always getting into conflicts? And, and are you the person who feels like you have to win every argument? Are you the person who has to convince someone you're right? Are you the person like Peter after the Holy Spirit came who says, you know, I've got opinions on lots of things, but sports, politics, the length of some guy's hair, that's not really something that's worth dying for. You know, fashion, cars, money. I got opinions. That's not eternally significant. We can talk if you want. But I can't walk away, with you, walk away from you without telling you what God has told me to say. Do you have that kind of humility? If you're like the old Peter, and I think a lot of us are, then I want to challenge you to pray for humility. And pray daily. I mean, face it, all of us need humility. Humility is, is, is shy, so the first time you notice it, it goes away, right? All of us need to pray for humility. But you bold people, you need to pray for it daily. And you need to pray for it fervently. And you need to never stop praying for it. And confessing before God every time you shoot off at the mouth. Every time you use this scalpel God gave you as a battle axe. And pray, Lord, humble me to use my gift wisely. And then there's a third point. Most of us are not like Peter. There's a few of us in this room who are, and I'm glad you're here and we need you. But most of us, most of us are not bold by nature. We're just not. We care more about being nice than we do about being right. We care more about what others think of us and not hurting people's feelings and not making people mad than we do about winning an argument. And that's good in a certain extent. I mean, nice people are fun to be around. I'm a nice guy. I was raised that way. I, I care how you think about me. If, if you're mad at me, I guarantee you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be up tonight tossing and turning about it. What can I do to make it up to him or her? Niceness is fine. I love pastoring a church full of nice people. It's a lot better than the alternative. But niceness is not one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5. Niceness is, at best, a second-rate virtue. Niceness won't save anybody. 
In fact, you can knife someone straight to hell because you're too afraid to tell them the truth that sets them free. And you've got a buddy who's about to destroy his family, making bad decisions, and you're like, eh, I want to talk to him, but, you know, he'd get mad. And you've got a, a friend who you can tell is stumbling into addiction and someone needs to confront her, but you're like, eh, but she might not be my friend anymore. And you've got another friend who you've known for years who doesn't know Christ and you know you need to share with him, but it would make the friendship weird. And us nice people need to put on our big boy pants and get a spine. And what we need to pray for, yeah, we need humility too, but we need to pray for boldness. Do you pray for boldness? Do you pray for it? Because I do every day. And I'm getting better, but I'm still a long way from there. Pray for boldness. Pray for humility. Pray to be the person God wants you to be. You know, back in 2001, September 11th, when that first jet hit the Twin Towers, Scientists have done a study on this. They, they've interviewed people who were in the buildings and survived. They've found that on average, it took, six people, it took six minutes for people to decide to evacuate. I mean, imagine this. A jet airliner has hit your building. Your building has literally lurched to the side. Glass breaking flames. And people sat at their desks and continued to work. Or some called their families. What, is it? what are they saying on the news? Other people just kind of milled around saying, what are we supposed to do? They interviewed one woman, Elia Cedeno, and she said, my first instinct was just to stay put. I just thought, I was hoping that someone would come by and say, hey, it's no big deal. We got this covered. But instead, someone came running into our, into our office place and screamed, y'all need to get out. Get out of here. And she said, I'd probably be dead today if that person hadn't said that. We're living, spiritually speaking, in the Twin Towers on 9-11 with people who don't know what to do and someone needs to speak to them. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes it needs to be that confrontational method that says, here's the truth, what do you think? Here's the truth, what's your response? Here's what I know, now what are you going to do about it? Sometimes every one of us needs to do that. Some of us are really good at it, most of us aren't, but every one of us sometimes need to be ready, so we need to pray for boldness. Because here's the thing, we're living in the country of the blind, and people can't find their way without a guide, and that's our job. There are people in your life, your friends, your relatives, your neighbors, co-workers, person who brings you your food today at lunch, person who cuts your hair, person who is your dental hygienist, or the person who teaches your children in second grade, your, your kid's soccer coach. You may be the only contact they have with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the thing is, we follow one who when he was in the country of the blind, he didn't ignore it, and he didn't flee. He brought light to us, and that's our job too.